Assalamu alaikum rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Today's podcast is brought to you by IslamicLens.com, a website devoted to addressing a wide range of critical issues. Because whether you're aware of this or not, Muslims today as a whole are suffering from a massive intellectual void. So this website is an attempt to chip away at this void idea by idea. All right, today we're going to tackle the topic of riba, or the rough translation in English would be interest. Let me first preface by saying this topic is not a new one. Right now you can go online and you can find a plethora of articles, books, and videos, and all of them have done a good job of defining what riba is as described in Quran and why it is such a serious offense or serious sin in Islam. But in our research, what is missing was concrete, practical, real-world examples so you can truly dive deeper and really understand what Rabbi is. Also, unfortunately, in my community, Muslims here, I don't know about your community, but here, Muslims severely indulge and abuse Rabbi as if Allah never addressed it. That's why we feel this is a critical issue that needs to be addressed a little bit deeper. But before we get into examples, let's first properly define what Rabbi is just in case you don't know. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has forbid us from two types of riba. Riba al-Fadal, F-A-D-L, and Riba al-Nasiyah, N-A-S-I-A-H, just in case you want to Google it. Uh, riba al-Fadal is commonly referred to as trade usury. It's when two things are exchanged in unequal quantities or unequal proportions. For example, let's say I have an 8-ounce gold watch and you have a 10-ounce gold watch and somehow I convince you to trade your 10-ounce gold watch for my 8-ounce gold watch. First of all, why would someone even make that trade is beyond my knowledge. But if somehow I convinced you or tricked you into making this trade, that extra two ounces of gold that I'm gaining is the ribal fadal. That being said, we will not be addressing this type of riba today. Because quite frankly, it's easy to avoid this type of riba, it's easy to understand, and it's not that common today. But the other category, Rabbil Nasiyah, is extremely common today. Basically, the whole world runs under Rabbil Nasiyah today, unfortunately. And that's the one we're going to tackle today with several examples. Riba al-Nasiyah is commonly referred to as debt usury or interest-based transactions. Now, while researching this type of riba, we ran across many definitions online, and all of them were okay, and all of them were very similar, but all of them were not quite right. For example, take this, def- this definition from the Institute of Islamic University in Pakistan. They define Riba al-Nasiyah as the following, quote, an unjustified increment in borrowing or lending money paid in kind in money above the amount of loan as a condition opposed by the lender or voluntary by the borrower. First of all, it's extremely wordy. It's slightly confusing in my opinion. But the worst thing about it is what do they mean by unjustified increment? That that sounds like a loophole to me because it implies that there's such a thing as a justified increment or justified riba. Here's another definition I found from the Ames Education Institute in the UK. They define riba al-Nasiyah as an increase excess or additional compensation without due consideration. Uh, This one has the opposite problem, I think. It's a little too simple, but more importantly, what do they mean by without due consideration? That sounds like another loophole because it it implies that there's such a thing as a due consideration. One final example I found of an okay definition was on a quote-unquote Islamic banking website. Now, why I say quote-unquote, I'll get into a little later. But this, this definition was five paragraphs long, and they used very high-level words. I actually had to Google some of the words because I didn't understand what they meant. In my opinion, it was insanely wordy, it was extremely long, and you had to read it like five times just to begin to understand it. The irony is that this definition is actually very simple. There's no reason to insert loopholes or overcomplicate it. 
So we put forth the following definition. Riba nasiya is a transaction that results in an increasing capital in exchange for time. An increasing capital in exchange for time. And that increase is riba nasiya. That's it. Pretty simple. But notice I didn't specify which side of the transaction this definition applies to because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made it very clear that there's no difference between the one who receives interest and the one who pays interest. They're completely the same. In the Sahih Muslim collection of hadith, Jaber narrates that the Prophet al-Islam cursed the one who consumes riba and the one who pays it, the one who writes it down and the two who witnesses it. And he said, they are all the same. And on that note, before I get into any examples, let's just leave no doubt. Engaging in any type of river transaction is extremely haram. It's extremely forbidden. It's one of the top 10 sins in Islam. It's on the same list as murder. But for me, what really drove her home and taught me how serious this sin is was when I understood and learned Surah Al-Baqarah 278 and 279. I'll read them real fast. In English, I'll paraphrase. O you who believe, fear Allah and give up what remains due to you of interest if you should be believers. Pretty straightforward. But really listen to this. Surah Al-Baqarah 279. Allah says, And if you do not, then take a notice of war from Allah and His Messenger. But if you repent, you shall have your principle unwronging and unwronged. I want to repeat that last part again. Quote, And if you do not, then take a notice of war from Allah. I mean, let's let's pause for a second and really think about that statement. It for me, it's it's insanely uh, profound. I mean, currently we live in a world where the United States of America is the most advanced military ever created in the history of mankind. They're so superior, they say, that they're about thirty times stronger than all the EU militaries combined, by some estimates. I mean, that's very powerful. Between nukes and drones and their superior weapons, it's just crazy how strong they are. That being said, if let's say hypothetically that there was a gold tree, I don't know why a gold tree, it just, just makes sense for me for a second, just work with me. So there's a gold tree and the United States tells me, that me, not a country, not a whole military, just me, the little, little old me, if you touch that tree, it's as if you declared war on us. Would you touch that tree? I know it's a silly example, but I'm, it kind of proves my point. Nobody would touch that tree because who would want the nuclear capability, the the weapons? I mean, the 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 you know what I'm saying. Nobody's gonna touch that tree. But here, it's Allah Subhanahu wa Taala telling you, the Creator of the universe, if you indulge in riba, it's as if the, it's a declaration of war from me to you. Really think about that. Okay, now that I've scared you a little bit, let's now take our definition, which I'll repeat again. Quote. An increase in capital in exchange for time. And we're going to take this definition, apply it to some examples so we can clearly understand it. Now, in a perfect world, I would have these examples presented in some kind of video, you know, visual format. But uh, this is a podcast, so you're stuck with my voice. That being said, um, I'll do my best to explain it slowly and keep it simple with the, with the standard parameters. So let's say, for example, there's a house for sale. And this house, the owner, his name is John. Why John? I don't know. It's the first name popped my mind. And he's asking $200,000 for this house. And I am the person who's going to buy the house. All right. The first example is simple. John's asking $200,000. Whether I use a realtor or I talk to him directly myself, we strike a deal. We convince John to say, you know, take 10% down, which is $20,000 as a down payment. And the rest of it, which is $180,000, John agrees to take it over 10 years or 120 months. So I'm going to pay John. 
200,000, I'm sorry, $20,000 as a down payment. And then every month for 120 months, I'm going to pay him $1,500. And by the end of the result, my grand total of payments is going to be 200,000, just like he asked. This is not riba. This technically is a land contract. It's a very straightforward deal where the owner, John in this case, agrees to, he asked for the certain price. I agree to it and I, we split up the payments accordingly and I pay him accordingly. Very straightforward, very halal. That was example A. All right, for example B, let's change the conditions a little bit. Let's say, for instance, this deal in example B is being made in a country that offers a mortgage interest tax break like the United States. And as a side note, again, the U.S. does this because the whole system they've created is based on interest-based transactions. So they're trying to incentivize people to actually go get mortgage loans because that's what fuels their economy. So they give the people a tax break on the interest they pay on that mortgage. So in this example, we'll call it example B. Let's say John's my boy. And because he's my boy, he's going to allow me to write the contract in such a way where I can take advantage of this mortgage interest tax break that the U.S. offers. So I'm still going to give him a $20,000 down payment. I'm going to still pay an overall value for his home of $200,000. But unlike an A where we took the balance of 180 and we divided it evenly over 120 months, we're going to make the contract say that I paid $160,000 for his house overall value with minus 20K down payment that leaves a balance of $140,000. And then I'm going to pay him that $140,000 still over 120 months, but with a 5.25% interest rate. The payment, just like an A, works out to $1,500 a month. Well, your instinct at this point would say, uh-huh, see, that's interest. That's haram. You said it yourself. You're paying 5.25% interest. Well, this brings me to the most important point of this podcast. A wise scholar once said to me, don't get lost in the words of the contract. Don't get lost in the language of a contract because language and words can be manipulated what you need to really look at it is the nature of the contract, the essence of the contract. And if we did that to A and B, you would see that there is no increase in capital in exchange for time. This is not riba and nasiya. And A was a straight shot. There was no third party coming in, loaning me money on behalf of me to John. And B, the same thing. There was no third party coming in, loaning money on my behalf, increasing the capital in exchange for time. It's just a straight shot. All we really did is we played with the words of the contract. And, but the essence, the nature of the contract is the same. I'm paying exactly 200000 for the house, same conditions, same time, no increase in capital in exchange for time. Let's now look at an example that clearly is Rabbi Nasiya. So again, I want to buy John's house for $200,000. That's what we agreed upon. I have the $20,000 down payment, but John can't wait for the rest of his money. He doesn't want to give me time, the 10 years, like an example A or example B. He wants his money today. So I go to a traditional mortgage company and they step in on my behalf and they pay John the money. So what do I do? I give the traditional mortgage company the $20,000 uh, down payment as collateral. They turn around, give John his $200,000. So he's all set. Then they finance me the balance of $180,000 at 5.25% interest for, let's say again, we'll just keep it simple, 120 months or 10 years. My payment now is going to be $1,930 a month. And at the end of the 10 years, I'll end up paying out of my pocket $251,000. This example is as clear as it's going to get. Again, an increase in capital in exchange for time. The bank in this case stepped in and gave John money on my behalf in exchange for time. Or another way to put it is, because I couldn't have the money myself, I got a loan on my behalf, which resulted in an increase in capital in exchange for time. 
So in this example, instead of paying $200,000 for, for the house, because I got time, I ended up paying $251,000 for the house. At this point, you might say to yourself, fine, I clearly see the example C is what I'm going to see you. But what about Islamic banks? What about Islamic financing? Well, over the last few years, in particular the last few weeks in preparation for this podcast, we've read a handful of different Islamic banking house purchase contracts. And again, I haven't read all of them out there, but every single one I've read, every single one we've read is basically just like example C with one key difference. They, in a nutshell, replaced the word interest in the contract with another word. For example, one of the more popular Islamic banks out there literally replaced the word interest in their contract for the word rent. On a traditional mortgage, like an example C, you get something called an amortization schedule. This schedule basically tells you that how much of your payment you're paying every month goes towards principal and how much of that payment goes towards interest. But on this Islamic bank's amortization schedule, the word rent is in place of the word interest. Why? Because the big banks that back up and buy these loans from the smaller loan companies have figured out that Muslims are fixated and allergic to the word interest. So they said, fine, we'll replace the word interest with the word rent. And they geared the contract in that, in that fashion. They don't care. At the end of the day, they figured out that all they really care about is not the word interest. What they really care about is that they get their increase in capital in exchange for the time that they're giving us. You know, every time I run across one of these quote-unquote Islamic contracts, they remind me of a saying my dad used to shout out every time he'd watch the Middle Eastern news on the satellite. Anytime he saw one of those corrupt mafia leaders talk, and as a side note, they are all corrupt mafia leaders, he would shout out, alayna which roughly translates to, in English, they're laughing at us. For example, in another Islamic bank that we've researched, they took the word interest out of the contract and they replaced it with the word co-ownership. So basically, the nature of the contract is that they're going to step in and pay John his $200,000, and then we'll own the home together. And then with each payment I make, a little extra will go to buy down their portion of the ownership. So, for example, in the beginning, they own 100%, I own zero. And then little by little, with each payment, it'll turn into 50-50. And I keep going till the end of the contract to the point where they own zero and I own 100%. But here's the point. That little extra is interest. The result, the nature of the contract, regardless of the words, regardless of the language of chosen, is the same. It results, again, and they're stepping on my behalf paying John off, so I end up paying an increase in capital in exchange for time. This is still Rabbanasiya. But if the Islamic bank, or any bank for that matter, would have bought the home from John, stepped in and paid him his 200000 and then turned around and sold me the house for, let's say, 250000 and I agree, like two separate transactions, two separate deals, that would be fine. Because again, that's a direct deal between me and the Islamic bank. That's like back like example A. That's okay. But again, that's not what they're doing. They're not in the business of buying homes. They're in the business of loaning money, just like a regular bank. And the irony is, if you really think about it, the banks that buy up these loans from the Islamic banks, the big banks, they're not looking at the language of the contract. They just care about the nature of the contract. But the Muslims who are supposed to look at the nature of the contract are fixated on the language of the contract. It's like backwards. And if you want to get even more deeper, the double irony is most of these interest bank, I'm sorry, these Islamic banks, they actually charge you one extra point higher than a traditional mortgage. You're actually paying more for doing the same haram. It's just crazy. Now do you see why I'm a dahaku alayna? All right, let's shift gears for a second. At this point, you might be thinking, due to my examples, that the only way something is Zerbana Siya when it's a third-party loan charging you more? No. What about a straight money loan? 
For example, I need $5,000. So I go to John, John again, and I borrow from him $5,000. But he charges me three points. So at the end of the, let's say, 10 weeks, I end up paying John 500 more extra dollars. So I give him $5,500. Very clear cut. Again, an increase in capital in exchange for time. So ribbon of could also be straight money loans. Or for instance, let's go back to example A. In that example, again, I was going to pay John $200,000 with a $20,000 down payment. Um, and I was going to do this over 120 months. So the balance over 120 months. So everything's the same. And he agreed. And again, this was a halal deal. But I don't have the $20,000 down payment. And I really want this house. So what do I do? I go to a traditional bank or I go to a loan shark or anybody for that matter. And I go get a loan for $20,000. But the person I get the loan from or the institution I get the loan from, they're charging me interest or they're charging me more money on top of the money, whatever you call it. And I end up paying not twenty, but I end up paying $25,000 for that twenty. Well, that extra $5,000 is Rebunasiya. So even though I made a halal deal with John, the deal I made with the loan shark, obviously, is Rebunasiya. But you might say to yourself, what's $5,000? What's only $5,000 in the big scheme of things when I can finally own a home for me and my family? In other words, the shaitan creates justifications. That's his job, to get in your mind and make you think otherwise. But remember, when these things occur, we must always go back to Quran for all actions. And Allah says, this is a declaration of war. Now, speaking of justifications, in the interest of being fair, we must note that some Muslim scholars and jurists, especially in recent times, have attempted to justify indulging in riba-based transactions. So we should quickly address some of the more common justifications. But before we do so, we must acknowledge, we must preface that these justifications are 100% a direct result of Muslims being heavily dominated and heavily influenced by old school and new school colonialization. As a quick side note, if you want to understand more about what we mean by old school and new school colonization, be sure to check our article titled The Corruption Formula on the homepage of MuslimCI.com. It's an absolute must read to understand what we mean by that. But plain and simple, Western domination in the Islamic world has intellectually destroyed the once strong Muslim mind. And as a result, Muslims today are politically and intellectually fragmented. And now we are taking solutions from the mainstream. And the mainstream today is a world dominated by capitalism and nationalism and feminism and liberalism and secularism and a lot of isms, but unfortunately not Islam. And in this chaos, new weaker standards and justifications have emerged. This is a fact. Case in point, take the inflation argument, for example, which basically says, I'll read it real quick, quote, interest payments may be considered as a compensation to the loss in the real value of money, and in this case, not considered Riba, end quote. Now, whether this opinion is, is valid or not from a uh, fake perspective, we will not address today. We will leave that to the experts. But even at face value, this justification just doesn't hold up. For instance, the current inflation rate in the U.S., as an example, is 1.6, and the cheapest interest rate you can get in the U.S. is about 3.3. So how do they explain the difference between these two values? The answer is they don't. They just kind of leave it open-ended, and that's where the dangerous part is. That's a weak justification. But perhaps the most frequently used justification, or I should say misused justification, is the argument of necessity. 
Now, in Islam, the concept or principle of doing a haram act when forced to do so out of necessity is, of course, a valid Islamic principle that stems from Surah Al-Baqarah 173 and other supporting ayat and hadith. I'm sure if you did a Google search, you'll find a good explanation for this principle if you're interested. But the most common example always given is the Muslim in the desert example, which, of course, says that if you're in the desert and you're absolutely starving with nothing to eat, and for some reason you just happen to have pork next to you, why in the desert you have pork, I don't know, but let's go with it for a second. Then you can eat that pork, which is normally haram to eat. You can eat that pork, but just enough to stay alive. And this is basically, in a nutshell, the principle of necessity. But in my opinion, a more practical example is if you happen to be one of the unfortunate Muslims that currently live in, let's say, Western Yemen, and your family is starving because of the U.S.-backed Saudi bombing, or a Muslim family in, let's say, Syria, and you're pinned down by U.S., Russian, and Assad bombs, and there is no food, or one of the poor Muslim families that is being exterminated in uh, Burma, Myanmar. Well, these people are, are basically starving and trying to find anything to eat. So for them, eating pork or eating the flesh of, of something dead like, uh, like pork or anything for that matter would be halal because they have to sustain their life. This is exactly what the rule of necessity is for. Now, we're not trying to get super negative here or change the subject into something more political, We've only mentioned these war-torn areas to illustrate an important point. The rule of necessity is supposed to be used in a dire situation, one in which you have completely exhausted every halal option and you're left with no other option, period. So why do we bring this up? Because some Muslims today apply this rule of necessity to owning a home to riba, like in example number three. Now again, we're not going to debate the thick merits of this application, and we can't speak for all areas, but I know 100% in my area, in my area, Muslims have a handful of other options in riba. So in my area, this Islamic principle is severely misused, unfortunately. Brothers and sisters, I just want to quickly say, I know it's hard. My God, we live in a world completely consumed by riba. It's everywhere. And, and Muslims today are in no situations to present the world with an alternative, unfortunately. But that doesn't change the reality. We are given a role in life. And that role is to hold tight to the rope of Allah the best we can. So I, I implore you guys to really think about these words, think of Allah's words before your next economic transaction. All right. I believe we covered all our bases. It was our intention today to bring a little more clarity to a somewhat confusing and at times difficult topic. I want to thank you for listening. And inshallah, you've learned something. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.